America is called a melting pot. It has been called a melting pot because, the, of course, you know that people from various countries, cultures, languages uh, converged here, came here and settled here, and for various reasons, some escaping persecution, some, in, some seeking prosperity, uh, and for the most part, everybody came here and got along uh, because, and, and this is a, a big uh, aspect of current citizenship debate, is the fact that people live under one set of laws, they speak one language, and they get along with each other, uh, neighbor to neighbor in terms of acceptance, even though people are different. And, uh, and that caused a great amount of prosperity here in America. You know, the different people from different places have different ideas. Uh, if their ideas are allowed to be free, again, under certain laws, uh, then there's prosperity, there's innovation, there's, you know, good ideas from different people. And uh, as people uh, brainstorm and do all of that kind of thing and work as a team, they come up with better results. Uh, the church is actually far more diverse than America could ever be or any nation because the church is worldwide and we are different. People in the church are different. They're from different backgrounds, different le- and not just backgrounds, but for us a, a condition of uh, prosperity in the church is our level of spiritual growth, how mature we are. And in the church, there are far different levels of uh, a great variety of different levels of spiritual growth. And yet, the church thrives. It doesn't always thrive. Not every local assembly thrives. But for the most part, the church has uh, thrived. almost said thriven. That's That's not the word. The church has thrived because there is, like with a country... That's a melting pot. In the church melting pot, there's one law, and it's God's law. You know, so it's God's scripture, and we behold, we are beholden to that. Uh, there is one God who, who commands us to get along. He commands us to be unified, and he gives us instruction on how to deal with each other, uh, both individually, one-on-one, all of us together in, in the group, and also dealing with, uh, how, meaning how we deal with one another and how we're to behave in general. And this is expected in the church. It should be expected in every church. And so the church prospers. And that's what we're going to look at today. Paul is going to give us instructions on how a church can thrive. The key to a thriving church is its function. The function of the church is to make people like Christ. The church has no other function than this, than to make people like Christ. That means the gospel and Bible teaching, the gospel to, conf- uh, to regenerate people so that they can be conformed to Christ and then conforming them through solid biblical teaching. Uh, and so... That's what we're going to look at today. So we'll be in our Bibles in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And let's open up in prayer. Let's thank God for our opportunity and privilege of having his word, being always grateful to study his word and ready to learn 
in humility and reverence, concentrating and focusing on what we are uh, together learning in that alone. With that, let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, thank You so much for the privilege of having a family, having the Rolf family. We thank You that You and You alone have provided for us brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers and sons and daughters who are eternally our family. You have united us in Christ. And when we or any of us are causing division or trouble in the church, You intervene. You ask us to intervene, but you also ask us to be comforting, understanding, forgiving, and patient. All of us need patience. We expect it from you, Father, and you give it. We must be patient towards one another. We will see that today. So we ask, Father, that through your Spirit we would each learn the theme and main idea of the message of the words that you have uh, recorded through your servant, the Apostle Paul. We ask in Christ's name, amen. So the church on the earth is the representation of God until the Lord returns. The Lord left us behind. Uh, he ascended into heaven and he told the disciples to go and make uh, uh, disciples of all other nations going to the four corners of the earth, and that's exactly what they did, and the church spread. Uh, the, therefore, the church and the church alone is a representation of Christ upon the earth. And that's a pretty big responsibility. Actually, it is the biggest responsibility. There's no other function to human beings other than to become conformed to the image of Christ. And I could say that with confidence because I know how it's going to end. We, we all, you can read the back of the book. It's there. There's, there's no crime in running to the back and seeing how it all turns out. That there's going to be one kingdom of men, angels serve, but mankind is all of us conformed to the image of Christ, Jew and Gentile, all dispensations, all of us as one kingdom. So that is the function. The church, therefore, has no other function than to do that. Now, we do a lot of things. You know, we have to then for ask ourselves, how do we conform people to the image of Christ? And so, for a church to survive, and when I mean survive, I don't at all mean, as I, if whenever I use the, the word today, I don't at all mean just the existence of a building that looks like a church that has people in it that call themselves Christians. I don't mean uh, the existence of the church. I mean spiritually surviving in the function that the church has been made to serve. Not every building that's called a church is actually doing the function that God desires it to do. It's vital that the church thrive in its function. The need for the church in the world is abundantly obvious. Uh, the world had the Western world in particular has been formed by the church. Uh, Christianity has made the the uh, been the impetus for how the Western world has developed human rights, has developed laws, has developed culture, even art and education 
has all been built upon Christianity, and most people alive now do not even know that, even though they are beneficiaries of it. As one writer, that I, lo- I love this phrase, that he writes that the entire Western world swims in Christian waters. And that doesn't mean everybody's a Christian. I don't mean that at all. Or that America is a Christian nation. It's not. It's not. It's a free nation so far. But the, uh, the Christian waters is to mean that the culture, the people, the mindset of people in the West has been formed by Christianity. So the need for the church is obvious. But the main function of the church, as I said, is to make people like Christ. Uh, The church's influence on education, on government, on people in general, uh, it made me think, you know, like Christmas time. If you lived in a community, I used to always love, we had the local Catholic church that we went to, a lot of people went to, it was packed on Christmas. Those were the Christmas and Easter, or the two days that this church was packed. But yet, even though we made fun of that, and I was one of them who, you know, was uh, not a consistent churchgoer, but it brought the community together. Uh, you know, a Christmas, just think of a Christmas Eve night with maybe it's snowing, you know, we'll, we'll go for the whole thing. Uh, Christmas Eve, it's snowing, there's the church, stained glass windows, people outside, you know, it's, people are nice to each other. There's an influence there. Even if it's not converting people by the gospel. There's an influence of goodness that overwhelms people. Hey, the next day they go back to killing each other, but at least for that day. It makes me think of uh, a very famously and, and truly historical. There was a Christmas day where in World War One they stopped fighting and the guys came out of the trenches and went to one another and said, Merry Christmas and exchanged whatever they had as gifts. And, uh, you know, there was a ceasefire for like, I don't know, it was for like an hour or something. And they all came together, Germans and mostly French uh, and, and English and America. I don't know if America was there in it yet, but they got together, allies and Axis, and, and uh, then they went back into the trenches and started shooting at each other again. It's an influence, but, and as good as that is, it's very good for society. It has been very good for society. But it's not the main function of the church. Some churches have been confused by that, and their whole function, uh, a great part of their function is to get involved politically or to try and you know, change schools or uh, you know, whatever, do social things. And although there's nothing wrong with doing that, every church has to ask itself, how does that make people like Christ? Are we, in whatever we do, have that goal in mind and keeping that goal in mind? Because that is the purpose of the church. So how does the church make people like Christ? The gospel and biblical teaching. People have to believe the gospel first. You have to be regenerated. But once you are regenerated, if you're a born-again believer, then you need biblical teaching from the literal text, literally interpreted from the Scripture, the inspired text. Technically, you have to believe that it is inspired to grow up spiritually. And through the knowledge and understanding of the Scripture, you learn who Christ is. 
And when you learn who Christ is, you start to emulate him. When you learn who Christ is, you learn who the Father is. And when you, and, and this is key, if you're learning the biblical text, if you're not trying to apply it, then the Holy Spirit can't really work with you. Right? The Holy Spirit definitely teaches us. So as we're learning Scripture, our understanding of Scripture, we, you know, we see the passage, we understand the passage. That comes from God, the Holy Spirit. But to truly understand the life that is Christ-like, meaning being conformed to his image and living that life, the Holy Spirit can really do nothing with a believer who won't do anything. You know, who won't apply it, who won't live it. There have to, we have to live in the application of the text, meaning trust its promises, obey its commands, uh, be motivated by its exhortations, be conformed to what its mind is. And if we do that, that's application of life, the life of Christ in our own life. And when we do that by faith, God the Holy Spirit really works with us. So how will the church thrive in this function? The church is a body made up of individual believers who are quite different. We're individuals. So if you remember back oh, ages ago when we were in Ephesians 4, there was one spirit, one Lord, one baptism, one faith, one Father, and, and all of it was one. And each of us is a part of that. And hence we were to be gentle with one another, understanding with one another, unified, because we're all of one Lord, one faith, one baptism, baptism, baptism of the Spirit. But then Paul said, even though we're one, we're made up of individuals. And the individuals have different spiritual gifts. We have different backgrounds. We have different um, uh, levels of spiritual growth. And so there's going to be weak believers in the midst of strong believers or stronger believers. There's going to be those who are disobedient in the midst of those who are striving to be obedient. There's going to be those who are uh, scared and oppressed. Uh, There are going to be those who are despairing. Now, you might be a strong believer, but today you're despairing. And you'll be in the midst of people who have nothing to do with the problem that is causing you to despair. And so we have this mixture, this mixture of despairing and not despairing, this mixture of weak and strong, this mixture of disobedient and obedient, and we're all believers and we're all in the melting pot. So how is the church supposed to survive with that kind of family? How are families doing in general in the world? What's the divorce rate? What's the single parent percentage? How are people doing if they're different? (laughs) How are they getting along with each other? How's the right and the left doing in this country right now? How are they getting along? Not well. Not well at all. And so, how is the church supposed to survive? I mean, God, I guess, at salvation could have made us all absolutely identical. That you all have the same spiritual gift. Or, isn't this thing dawned on me today, you just accept the church because the church has always been, you know, since the inception of the church. But what if he never made a church? 
He just said, you know, all you born-again believers, you're all on your own. Just stay isolated. Do your thing. Read your Bible. Don't bother about gathering together or anything like that. Right? You don't need buildings which you gather together, all learn God's Word together, all sing together, all praise God together. You know, that's stupid. We're going to keep you all isolated and alone. Just go about your lives. Why? Why did God make such a thing? Well, you know, that's a good question. <laughs> I don't think I'm prepared to answer it right now. I mean, I know some of the answers, but there's, there's got to be many answers to that. You know, why is there family? In the animal kingdom, some species do live in family structures. We just, uh, uh, Maggie and, uh, and I just watched a documentary on elephants, a new documentary. We were looking for something to watch. And that was marvelous. And it was unwoke. You know, I hate when they do the woke documentaries. This, this was just straight up elephants and how they live. And they're really social. You know, they have families. They even mourn their dead, which is amazing. It's been actually proven that they mourn their dead. And, uh, you know, God is throughout. But there are other, you know, animals, like, say, sharks, great white sharks. They, they live alone. Uh, and so, you know, what about, what about us? What about the human being? God made us in his image, and God is three and yet he's one. God is a family and an individual. And just like the church is one, we're also made up of individual members. So we have to get along. So in our last few classes, just quickly to remind, in 1 Thessalonians 5.1, first we saw that the Lord was coming like a thief in the night. In 1 Thessalonians 5.1, now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The times and the seasons, he said, you don't, I don't have to write anything about that. We sure wish he did. We'd know more about uh, the, the future, but he didn't. So what we know is what? The Lord is coming like a thief in the night. No one will expect him. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Here we see the wrath of God coming upon the unbeliever at his coming. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief. We will be surprised, but it won't be like a thief. It's going to be like a rescuing husband, which is exactly what he is. So that, uh, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober. That means spiritually, mentally, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So we're saved. When Christ comes, we'll be delivered. Christ could come at any time. If he comes today, we're delivered. That's the hope of salvation. It protects us. It protects our hearts. And on the breastplate, we have faith and love. And so we have this triad of virtues that Paul uses in several places. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. We believe. We love one another. We love God. And this protects us. 
It protects us and it motivates us to live soberly by faith, by love, and by and, and having hope. So he says in verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake... Now here, the awake and asleep, and I skipped over this really quickly when we went over it, and so I slowed down a little here, just in case you're wondering, because awake and asleep, Paul just used as meaning believer and unbeliever, Awake and asleep here refers to alive or dead, because he has also used sleep in terms of being dead. So, uh, <clears throat> if we're awake or asleep, we will live together with him. That takes us back to chapter 4, where Paul said, The dead in Christ shall rise, and we who return with Christ... Uh, well, actually, sorry. The dead in Christ shall rise, and we who are alive shall be caught up together with them in the air. And so at the rapture of the church, whether we're dead or we're alive, we will live, all of us together, with him. So we have this live together here at the coming of the Lord. And so let's, you know, put this in a real context. If you have a problem with someone in the church or someone has hurt you and you're having a hard time to forgive uh, or there's a conflict and you're having a hard time being at peace, if you understand that if, when the Lord comes back, say he comes back today, that immediately the dead and the living are going to be united together with him in the air. And there's going to be certainly no conflict there. No, no differences. No arguing. No bitterness. No lack of forgiveness. None of that. It's all gone. If that is our certain destiny, and that destiny could happen right now, in this very hour, that Paul is showing us here why would we persist in that behavior when we're no longer made of that kind of stuff. That's the old creature. And so we will live together with the Lord. So he says in verse 11, Therefore encourage one another and build up one another just as you were doing. So this returning Lord, who's going to gather together the whole family, has made us a family, not just then, but now. And now is where there's problems. In time, there are different types of believers. When I say different types, I mean different uh, commitment levels, different um, desires. Uh, You know, I think of how I've changed over the years and and just not even that long ago. I would consider myself in a different category of believer. You know, there's some that are more committed than others, but yet they're in the church. So what are we to do with them? Them. When I say them, it depends on what category you're in. Uh, In the church that I was in before, that was somewhat larger those different categories, that's hard to do here because there's so few people. But in a bigger church, those different categories kind of click together. You know, so all the ones who are kind of, we'll see the word here, unruly or disobedient, they kind of gravitate toward each other. All the old biddies who want to judge everybody, they all get together in their little hen party, right? And then all the, you know, the people who are, 
self-righteous, they get that group, and the partiers, the more lascivious, they get that group, and then they judge each other. And this is all of, all of that, and it happens, is completely antithetical to what the church, not I don't mean what the church should be, but what the church is. When I first read through this passage today that we're doing, and I, and I prayed upon it and studied it, I thought, well, my first thought, and I thought it was the right one, is that this passage is about the survival of the church. And then as I worked on it some more, I said, you know what? It's not about the survival of the church. The church is going to survive with or without us. Uh, it's certainly important that the church survives in its function, meaning to make people like Christ. But this passage is about what the church really is. It's the family of Christ. Right? Christ is the head, we're the body. We are the family of Christ. And if we don't have unity, despite all our differences, we don't look like His family. Not to the world. And certainly not to each other. And that, that's a real problem. And, and I, you know, we say, well, there are plenty where we get more people. You know, people think about, well, what churches is the... the, the the importance of the church is how many people are going, how many likes they get, right? Now that things are becoming online. I mean, they already were to a certain extent. They've gone, post-COVID, it's gone way over that way. And there's a lot of people, as I'm, as you know, I'm doing as well, pursuing it to a certain level. It's putting ourselves out there on on YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and other places like that, where we can definitely do good and get the gospel out there. But, so, you know, we produce some videos that have teachings on them. And then it can become very easy to say, well, you know, here's this guy's church and his little five-minute video on, I don't know, the love of God got two million views. And here's my video on the love of God, and it got ten views. And is, is his better, or is mine better? You know, like it's silly. That numbers here don't matter at all. What matters is, what are we supposed to be? What has God designed us to be? I mean, as a church. And if we know that individually, we'll know this as a church. So this uh, group now, again in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says that we'll live together with him, we who are awake or dead. And so he made us into a family, not just for eternity, but for time. The sons and daughters of the day, the sons and daughters of the light, are made to coexist in the body of Christ in time in something called the church. And it's a family. And like any family... The church has a code, uh, ethics. Every family has this, even if it's a bad code. Uh, every family lives by a certain code. Every family has a certain energy. Every family has a certain um, purpose about them. Some bad, some good. Every, every family has a motivation. You know, every family motivates their kids in one way or another. 
Again, towards bad or towards good. In the royal family, everything is good. Everything. Because if we're doing what we're supposed to do, everything is good. How we train our kids, good. How we relate to one another, good. How we love one another, ultimate good. How we greet one another, good. Everything in the church is good. You know, in a lonely world, and it's more lonely than it's ever been, the church offers to the world what it longs for. The fact that the world has been duped into thinking that they can't find what they long for in God, in the church, is just the success of Satan in fooling the world. So, uh, when it comes to you know, the church being good, well, first, we start with the fact that the church is made up of a bunch of sinners. The, that's what's wrong with it. What's wrong with the church is the people. And... Uh, that's what it's made out of. You know, it's if the church doesn't function the way that it should, it's our own fault. No believers start out, though, with a conscience and a lifestyle like Christ. We're all the, again, the main function of the church is that we are to be all conformed to Christ. But no believer starts out like this. We need time to grow. Hence, Paul is going to say, be patient with one another. Now, we're also different and at different levels of spiritual growth that the church would not be a place of rest or a place that does any good if it were only a place of division and fighting and conflict because we're so different. But the key to a thriving church is to do what's necessary to make people like Christ. So we have to be patient. We have to be at peace with one another even when we don't like what another person is particularly doing. And, as we'll see, if someone is being disobedient openly, they need to be admonished. That has to be done with love and gentleness. And generally, that comes from behind the pulpit. You know, you don't, you don't normally see people walk into churches and openly brag about or commit sin. The people who do that don't go to church. <laughs> I don't know why you would go to church, you know, to, to do something like that. And very rarely have I had to do it here, meaning not act like that, but uh, to, to admonish someone for publicly has uh, hardly happened at all. But the key to th- a thriving church is to do what's necessary to make people like Christ. So we have to be patient. We have to be at peace with one another. We have to give each other time to grow. It's so easy. You say, well, I have wisdom and you don't. And what do you, what do you want to do initially? Put it over their heads. I have commitment to God and you don't. And I want to put you down. So we'll close with that. So look at... Uh, 5.12, and we saw this on Sunday. So in any family, there's leadership, and there's those who are led. There are those in authority and those who are under that authority, and it's no different in the church. So First Thessalonians 5.12, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. 
so that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Again, because of their work. <clears throat> so there's this dynamic of authority and those under the authority, and that can be an issue. Right? We're talking about our human natures. Those under authority generally have this trend to rebel against authority. Those in authority have this general trend to lord it over those under their authority and to be conceited about their authority. And Christ undid all of that when he said the greatest of you is the one on the bottom. All right, so Christ knowing that he's going to set up his church on the earth and that in that church there's going to be authority, pastors, deacons, leaders, elders, and so on. And there's going to be those who are under them. We say under just authority in the church. And, uh, and that there's a potential for conflict there. But here Paul irons it out too, is that those who do lead are those who work hard. You know, and that's why they lead. These are going to be the ones who are mature, uh, maturer maybe? I don't know. Not in every case if we're talking about uh, you know, a title or an office. But generally it is true that the more mature lead, even if they don't have a position, like the pastor may not be the leader. The pastor is definitely the lead teacher. But when I when I say lead, and the pastor has the ultimate authority in the church. But can you you can imagine someone who is mature and who actually has this ability to lead people, lead the church, lead the administration of the church, lead the outreach of the church, uh, the work of the church, whatever it may be. Now, once Paul here deals with the leadership. And again, the Lord can come back any time. Keep the whole context. The Lord can come back at any time. We are one family. When he does come back, we will be unified forever. Therefore, we should be unified now. There's leaders and those who should appreciate their leaders. And then there is the next section, which generally flows. The whole thing is one section. But the, con the conduct of the community towards one another and the conduct of the community in general are going to be our next part. Paul moves to the conduct of the community of the church. How do we deal with one another? So he's done leaders and those under the leaders. Now he leaves that, and now he's going to deal with everybody. All right? So everybody in the church, leader or not, how do we deal with one another? So we're going to deal with the first part today. We'll read the entire section and then we'll take on that first part. Verse 13. 13, the last part. So I'm putting live in peace with one another into this section. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So you see in verse well, just before verse 14, that live in peace. We have live in peace with one another. And at the end of verse 14, we have be patient with everyone. And so one another is, uh, the word means yourselves in Greek. It means, literally it says, be at peace among yourselves. 
That would be the literal Greek here. Be at peace among yourselves. And then at the end, be patient with one another. And these are like bookends. All right, you see them? So be patient, be at peace. And then in the middle, we've got a mixture. We've got the unruly, the faint-hearted, and the weak. What's not mentioned here are the strong, but those are the ones who are doing the stronger, I should say, are the ones who are doing the verbs. And they're all commands here. It's almost like a laundry list that Paul lists here. It could almost be a list in like a, like a, like a grocery list where you say, pick up this, get that, buy this, or whatever. And here it's <clears throat> admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. There are three different kinds of people. The unruly are the disobedient. The faint-hearted are those who are kind of beaten down by life. And the weak are just those who are immature. And so, and on both ends of this, you got be at peace. And on the other end, be patient. Then he says in verse 15, continuing on the theme of how we deal with one another, uh, a, a contrast, in fact, a single contrast. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. <clears throat> it's translated just, just fine. See that no one repays another with evil for evil. So no revenge. Now why would I want revenge in the church? Well, go back to verse 14. The unruly. The unruly are disobedient. And let's say, you know, I like being obedient to the church, to God, to the Lord. And the, the disobedient either have hurt me or hurt someone else or said something or did something. And what? I want to get them back. Or here's the thing. They said something to me that was insulting. What is your initial response? I had a passage coming up on that as well. When someone reviles you, what should you do in return? Well, I don't know. What would Jesus do? You know that? That, that uh, campaign, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Well, there's a passage on that. He says he was reviled and he gave it right back. No, that's not how it goes. He was reviled and he did not revile in return. The church's job, purpose, is to make people like Christ. Hence, God is going to allow it. That people are going to be in our lives who you know what they're going to do to you. They're going to revile you. They're going to use their words, maybe ignorantly, and sometimes maybe purposely. <coughs> um, the second part. So, uh, so the first, this is a contrast. See that no one pay, repays evil, repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. And that and for all people, that's exactly what it means. It means the whole world. So I say, well, okay, if Christians revile me or do something against me, I'll do good to them, but not unbelievers. They don't deserve it. That is not true. We're to be good as taking the words of our Lord from the Sermon on the Mount. We're to be good to our enemies. And all people means all people. 
Okay, so verse, live in peace with one another. Verse 14, we urge you, brethren, admonish, encourage, help, be patient. Don't get revenge. Do good to everybody in the church. Do good to everybody in the world. All right, that's how we deal with one another. Then in verse 16, is how we are in general. And this is, again, just like a laundry list. Rejoice always. It doesn't mean always. You know what that means? Happy all the time. That doesn't mean you have a big smile on your face, especially when you're hurting. But it means that you're content or happy or rejoicing, even in your sorrow. Pray without ceasing. The the word is pray always. And this without ceasing means not every single moment but consistently. In everything, give thanks. Notice the words, always, without ceasing, everything. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. Thankful. Thankfulness is a form of worshiping God. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So, wait a minute. What is God's will? Is it just the giving thanks? Well, of course not. All of this that is listed here is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Why in Christ Jesus? Well, because that's our position. We're in Christ Jesus. And also, it is because that's whom we're to be conformed to. That is the purpose of the church. The church's purpose is to make people like Christ. That's what we're here for. Then he says, do not, verse 19, and we'll get to this, um, and maybe start it tomorrow. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. When it says prophetic utterances, it's just the word prophecy in plural. Do not despise prophecies or count them as no value is really what it means. But examine everything carefully, meaning the prophecies. If someone says, hey, I got a heavy revelation, examine it carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And so in the last two here, coming up to verse 22, we have another contrast between evil and good. And that gets us back to verse 15, where either we repay evil with evil or we do good to all people. Right? And do good here, agathos is a word that means it's generic. It's a generic, what is good for the moment to that person? And I have to determine that. So when you think, there's a lot here. There's a lot here. There's a lot here about our Lord's return, about the fact that we cannot predict when he's coming. We can't say, well, you know, it's already 4 o'clock on the West Coast, quarter of 4. Don't get, don't get anxious. It's already four o'clock on the West Coast, and there's he doesn't have enough time to come back today, right? It's too late. <laughs> if I were going to come back, I'd come back in the morning, wouldn't I? Um, he can come back at any time. When he does come back, the dead in Christ shall rise. Look, all of us are brothers and sisters of the light. We long for him to come back. And when he does, the dead, the living, doesn't matter. We're all going to be united with him in the air. So then Paul takes us from the air. We're like, wow, rapture, it's going to be awesome. And then he says, wait, come back down to earth. 
Because back down on earth is now where the people in your life, they're not in resurrection bodies yet. They're not sinless yet. They're not completely obedient all the time yet. They, all believers will be. They're not, they're not strong yet. They're not overcomers yet. And I want you to live with them patiently and in peace until I return. And say, uh, why did you do it this way? I, I often think of that. It's my, my uh, I don't know. I, I'm sure I'm not the only one. But it's the way my mind works. I think, you know, why wouldn't you, why did you do it this way? In many ways, God could have done things, right? I mean, he's almighty. He can do whatever he wants. Why did he do it this way? And there has to be a very sound reason. And there's a purpose in it. There always is. So why does he tell us love the weak? Now, well, so we have to see these verbs, right? Okay, first. Admonish the unruly. I'll go through these quick. Uh, they, it's the same word as in 5.12. You can go back to 5.12. That's about the leaders. The leaders are to... It's interesting how they translate the same verb differently in like the same paragraph, which kind of annoys me. Uh, but where it says in verse 12, we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who toil, diligently labor among you, have charge over you in the Lord, and give you instruction. And that word instruction is the exact same word that is translated here, admonish. And I guess, you know, I can see, understand why. This this word, uh, I can almost remember it, but it, it means to teach, but it also means to teach with warning. And if you're just teaching in general, the word teach is fine, you know, just like I'm doing right now. But if you were teaching someone who is this word unruly, it means disobedient. So what would you do to the disobedient? Well, you'd teach them as well. But you'd also, that's where the word admonish comes in. Admonish means to warn, uh, yeah, to warn. I think warn's the best. To tell them, look, beware. <laughs> not, not from me, but from God, from the Lord. Now, when we admonish the unruly, this gets touchy. So we could say in the church, hey, you know, I know so-and-so is living a life of sin. Let's go get them. Well, who? If they don't make it public in the church, it's none of your business. It's nobody's business. We are not to invade people's private lives. There are, there are some churches who do this, have done this. In the history, uh, you know, John Calvin's uh, experiment in Geneva is always something that I think of when I think of this, where on Sunday there were actual church policemen going all over the city making sure everybody was in church. And if you weren't in church, it was a crime against the state and you were thrown in jail. Church attendance went up. And that's one way to do it, I guess. Uh, then, comfort the faint-hearted. 
This Greek verb also means to speak soothingly to. So it's the word for comfort. There's another word in Greek that can also be translated comfort. It's used a lot in the New Testament, but this one is specific to truly being tender in your comfort. Now, who are the faint-hearted? That's a hard one to determine here because the noun faint-hearted is only used here by Paul in the whole New Testament. So we have to look to other sources uh, where it's used to try and get a a more deeper meaning of it. Uh, And as you do that, it's it's pretty easy to figure out. Uh, Literally, this word faint-hearted, it's a compound word made of the Greek word for small or little and the word for soul. And so you've got little soul. And that's I love when they do that because... It gives you a picture of the faint-hearted is not the one with the mega soul. It speaks of the strong, you know, bold. This is someone who is exhausted, discouraged, disheartened, exasperated. You know, in some ways this word is translated in other uses in Greek that are outside the Bible. It can speak of someone who's completely lonely because of, the problems in their lives and the pain that they feel. And what should we do to them? Suck it up, buttercup? Is that what we should say? Or should we do what Paul says here? We are to comfort them. Encourage them. You know, and it would be easy if I have wisdom and spiritual growth to say, why are you so weak? What's wrong with you? Get with it. And that is not the church. That's humankind, fallen humankind. We do it all the time. But it's not the church. The church comforts the faint-hearted and then lastly, helps the weak. These three verbs, they're all commands, by the way. Um, Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, or comfort the faint-hearted, help the weak. Uh, This Greek verb, anteko, means to hold up or support. And that gives it a little extra nuance for us that, you know, what do we mean by help the weak? And by the way, who do we mean by weak? Could it be the sinners, you know, those who are weak spiritually? But, and you know, it has something of a connotation of that, but it really refers to the immature The context would point to the immature. And the immature spiritually will sin more than the mature. The immature spiritually are more prone to temptation than the mature. And all of us, if you have matured, you know that. You can look back at your past and say, yeah, I fell for some temptations that uh, I would never fall for now because I know more. I'm more mature. And so... um, Oh, that's the spiritually immature. And so the the body of Christ is to do this. Now, I have passages for this, but I'm going to leave them until tomorrow and get to application here. Uh, Go to 1 Peter chapter 3, just for one little key point there. Now, we'll quickly return to these three tomorrow and move on, but 
there's plenty of other passages that back up this treatment of these three groups. Okay, so here's your church. Who's, who comes to your church? Could you imagine if someone says, hey, who goes to your church? And you say, ah, oh, the unruly, the faint-hearted, the weak, and the strong. They're all there. So why don't you come on down? We all sit in different sections. There's the weak section. There's the disobedient section. We put them in the back. There's the faint-hearted. We put them up close, you know, so no one sees them weeping, that kind of thing. You know, we're all here. And we're not to judge one another based on where we're at. But notice, look at 1 Peter 3, 15. It says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Go back to verse 8. To sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but given a blessing instead. It's almost the same, except Peter here has made it more verbal. In other words, it's what we say. Don't return evil or insult, but give a blessing. He's really talking about verbal, whereas Paul is talking in general evil for evil. But it's the same thing, and they use the same words. The, the Greek word uh, kakos, which means evil. Uh, it sounds like kaka. That's how I remember it in Greek. <laughs> it is. Kalos is good. Kakos is evil. Kalos, kakos. And evil is kaka. I'm doing Greek. I'm not swearing. Notice. Harmonious, be harmonious. Let let how many of us? All. Paul said, be at peace with one another. Let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. How in the world am I supposed to do that when that jerk just said something evil to me? What is your natural response? To say something evil back. Jerk. How dare you say that to me? How in the world am I supposed to remember that in that moment I'm to return a blessing instead of evil? Verse 15 again. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. So, once again, what is the key to a thriving church? What is the purpose of the church? The church is designed to conform people to Christ. It is our job to make the church the place where that happens the easiest. And the way that that happens, if there's someone in our church, and not just here, any church, where they give insult and evil when the strong, the mature in that church, give blessing back, we're helping them mature. When we fight back, we're just given in to evil, and we both lose. We both go backwards spiritually, at least a step or two. But when, when things happen that cause division in natural earthly settings like families and businesses and governments and schools and so on, but in the church, when evil is done, good returns. 
when unruly are there, we have the courage to warn them. When the weak are here, we don't put them down, we build them up. When the faint-hearted are here, we don't lord it over them because we're not faint-hearted, but we actually take the time to comfort them. We're taking the whole body and we're helping it grow. And that's what sustains a church. I don't mean the building and the people and the geography. I mean the purpose of it. That's what Paul is getting at. What is the purpose of the church? The purpose of the church, like the melting pot that it is, is to conform people to the image of Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the warning, exhortations, and encouragement that comes from your word. Thank you for the promises and the commands. And through it all, Father, we keep returning to your word that we may learn. And as we learn day after day, days become weeks, weeks become months and years. And somehow, thanks to your grace and your spirit, we grow up. And we start, rather than being those who need the admonishment, are the ones that are able to give it. Instead of those who need the comfort, we're the ones who are able to provide it. We thank you, Father, that you are patient. May we be patient and at peace with one another. In Christ's name, amen.